0: Father, we ask for your wisdom as we get into the little book of Colossians here, how Paul was so encouraged by the love and the spirit that these people possessed and how he was eager for their maturity to just take hold and that they could uh, fly away, so to speak, with ministry that had been given to them. For we all have a ministry that we have been given, and I ask, Lord, that we would uh, be able to recognize what those things are and follow the pattern that Paul was delivering for those in Colossae, how they might gain knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to back up a little bit to verse 9. In chapter 1, uh, he's talking about the love in the Spirit. And for this reason, that they were expressing the love in the Spirit to all who were around him. He says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. And asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So those three things Paul was praying for. For these people in Colossae, this is something that is good that we can pray for, for our children, for our nieces, for our nephews, anyone who is small, even the older people, we can pray for them as well, that they would have wisdom and understanding, spiritual knowledge. And this is all for the purpose, as I pointed out last week, to live a life worthy and please him in every way. Now, how do we do that? How do we live the worthy life? How do we please him in every way? And I gave you five things there. And they were bearing fruit in every good work. So, in other words, we're working, growing in knowledge. You're studying the Bible. You understand what it has to say. Strengthened with power according to God's strength, because if you actually work for the Lord, you're going to get tired if you do it properly. And possess great endurance and patience. In other words, you're going to have some difficulty along the way, and you're going to need to endure, and you're going to need to be patient as the Father is working in you. And then you're supposed to joyfully give thanks. Back to the Father for what He's doing in you, how He's moving you along. And when we are fully mature as Christians, we will exhibit these universal characteristics. Now, I kind of broke these down a little bit farther. In Ephesians chapter 4, I think you guys are familiar with it. It was He who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. And here's the key part to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So the service they are to render is for the sake and benefit of the body in general. We're to be operating with our gifts inside the church. Now, if you take the illustration of children again, the older individuals usually assist the younger. For instance, when you start with a little child, One thing I remember as a child was being over at my grandmother's house over off of Bryant Street in San Diego. It's where all the jets would land going down to the airport. I was tiny. I must have been three years old. And they sat me down in a chair, and they showed me how to tie my shoes. And I got it wrong a couple of times, but I remember doing that. I just happened to remember that particular thing. I can also remember, uh, probably like you, pick up your toys. You know, you have toys out there. And at first, when you're starting with children, you help them so that they understand how to pick up toys. You have to teach them everything or how to dress properly. You ever have the children that put the shoes on wrong or two different socks or two different shoes and they like that's the way they dress or things that clash. They just put them on because they like them and you need to tell them, teach them how to dress properly. Then you move on. You say, okay, you need to clean up your room. You get a little older, you have to clean up your room. That was Saturdays for us when we were growing up. My mom, or if my dad was there. My mom, certainly she came in and said, okay, okay, clean up your room and clean up the rest of the house and clean up the garage and clean up the backyard. That's what would happen for us on Saturday. And they taught us to say thank you and please. I have a picture at home and there are four boys in my family that I grew up with. I'm uh, number three uh, out of four. And we went to Las Vegas. And we were in Las Vegas. I was young. I was uh, uh, maybe in the single digits, maybe 10, 11 years old. And there's pictures of all of us sitting around. It's a black and white photo sitting around this table at a dinner show. We saw the 1969 World Series Mets. I can remember that too. And there was some other entertainment there and they did a little show and it was a dinner show that we were in and my cousin uh, was there uh, from Las Vegas and all of us, we sat with our hands in our lap. We had the bro cream wave going on. We had the tie, the suit. We were all sitting there nicely behaved. My dad had the black bow tie on and black suit and my mom had her mink stole and and it was just the picture perfect little event for the family and we were threatened within an inch of our lives if we got out of line and you, you know we were told how to act and yes and thank you and please and address the waiter or waitress whoever comes over all of those things we were taught we also had to say yes sir no sir yes ma'am no man we never called any adult by their first name it was always mr mrs or miss. And that was always out of respect. And we also, uh, got taught how to greet others. You probably had this. We had a little neighbor boy. Um, Patty was experiencing this with a little neighbor boy. The father was teaching him how to say hello. How are you? My name is Noah. And that's his name. And, and all of that we teach children. We teach them also how to get along. You put kids together. What's going to happen? You're going to have a fight of some kind you're going to have a disagreement that's my toy no that's mine he hit me or whatever the case is if you grew up with siblings or you have had children you see that this is the case now transfer that over to the church well what about in the church pick up the toys in the nursery let me show you how to do it i'm going to help you somebody who's a believer that's older in years but oh this is what we do okay that's fine you teach them to be modest in their dress and in their speech. Uh, this is something that a believer will gain a hold of, that they'll gain that idea that you're supposed to be modest in the way that you handle yourself. Or, how about, let's go, instead of clean up your room, let's go clean up the fellowship hall. Come on, come with me. And somebody who is more mature will take that individual along. And we, uh, teach the scriptures and in the scriptures it says we are to show thanks and appreciation and we're always to be thankful for everything that God does with us. We're to greet one another. I have you guys greet each other. I remember the first time a man gave me a hug. I just like, it, it, it was, it was difficult for me and it wasn't even a believer. It was before I was a believer and, and they're trying to be, um, up with the times you know the 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 bell bottoms and everything or then it's free love and all of that and let's just give hugs to everybody yeah i can give a hug to another yeah give a hug to another guy and and that's what we did well in christendom it's unusual not to do that in our culture i was in the habit sometimes of giving people hugs as they'd come through the door and one time i gave a hug to a woman who came through the door and it was not appreciated. It's like, don't touch me. I'm sorry. you know. But for the most part, everybody will give a handshake, hug, something, pat on the back. That's part of Christian fellowship. And then you have to learn how to settle disputes amongst believers. There's always going to be conflict inside the church. So that is why the pastors and the teachers and evangelists and the apostles and the prophets were all given the task of training up people in order to do good works. And there are some rules that we can follow with that. In Luke chapter 16, verse 10, it says, whoever can be trusted with a little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if somebody is faithful in carrying out particular tasks... You know that they're going to be faithful in big things if they're faithful in the small things. And the second thing here is knowledge. Now, I'm just going to give them to you. There's service, there's knowledge, there's strength, and there's praise. These are characteristics of any Christian who is out there. Knowledge, first, our 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. We are to grow in in our knowledge of who Jesus is. We're to understand all the biblical stories. We're to go through them one at a time and seek to glean some information, some wisdom from that to understand who Jesus is. Can you say, I know Jesus, just like you know a spouse, just like you know your children. Do you know Jesus that well, because when somebody portrays an image of Jesus that isn't biblical, you'll be able to pick it out right away. If somebody accuses someone you know of something that's out of character, you go, "No, that's not that individual. That that's not true," or just the opposite. If the story seems just uh, grandized, and you're going, "What? What is it? That doesn't make sense." You know, if somebody's kind of not telling the truth, you can pick things out if you know the individual who is there and with knowledge for a child how do you start to teach them first you teach them hold the spoon this way and this is how you get it to your mouth sometimes they just put it down and they grab the food and they stick it in their mouth or the cake is usually the one your cake is the first thing they usually stick their face into or they grab but then after that You go to the ABCs, and you have a little song, and you sing the song, ABCD. You go through that, and they go, oh, yeah, the ABCs. And they're really happy when you praise them once they have that down. Then you move on to vocabulary. Now, this is strictly knowledge. You move on to vocabulary. You're pointing at things. My little grandson, I say, where's your nose? And he points. Where's your ear? And he points to his ear. Where's your eye? And he points sets his eye and he points to his eye and mouth and the chin and all of that. He, he's got all that down that's good he's not saying all those things yet but he's got all that stuff down and you teach them that then there's as they get older the three r's remember the three r's reading writing arithmetic you got to take spelling to get that one down reading writing arithmetic you teach them the basics, how to function. I can remember teaching my kids about coins. That was my job. Like there's a nickel and there's a dime and two nickels equal a dime and 10 pennies equal a dime. And just going through those books and it had the pictures of all those coins. And and then as they get older, you teach them concepts. Like, why is this person so mean? what is going on with that how are you supposed to react to that so these concepts that we are supposed to teach our children we'll take that again to the christian to the christian who is called to do good works works of service he has to have knowledge well where do you start the young christian the young christian you start them with the books of the Bible. And I know all of you have the books of the Bible memorized. You have it down. You can sing it in a song. You can go from Genesis to Revelation. No problem. You know how many books in the Bible there are. There's are 66 books. And you know the minor prophets and Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, and Nahum. You can go through all of the, the prophets that are in the Old Testament. You can name them off. No problem. That's basic Christianity. Then there is the Ten Commandments. Usually people get about three or four Ten Commandments, not in order. We should have the Ten Commandments in order so that whenever we're questioning, well, what's God's will, if we don't just use the two commandments, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. If you need to refer to the Ten, you have them down. Do not steal. Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. But kids, they haven't gotten the concept yet. Uh, well that's not loving your neighbor see that's another concept you have to wait till they're older you just tell them the rote learning stuff you say don't steal don't kill don't lie love god those types of things are simple and basic and so those two things at least we should have memorized i had somebody who was teaching here once wanted to challenge me on that they, they came up and said do you have the Ten Commandments memorized in order? And they had a little coin to pass out. If you got the Ten Commandments, you got the coin, and he would pass them out to the kids, which was good. And I, I got it. I was able to say all ten. And then there are the concepts of doctrine. If you start to get into doctrine, and you can just keep diving, it goes deeper and deeper and deeper It just depends on how much time you want to spend on any particular doctrine you know those free divers that are out there free divers that go down to like 600 feet on one breath and then they come up i don't know if you know this but the lung the lungs when they do that goes from about this big to about this big and there's tremendous pain in doing that because all that air gets compressed if you've ever seen the videos where somebody will take an empty water bottle down and it just crushes into nothing, even at 50 or 60 feet. And if you can imagine going hundreds of feet down, that's what happens inside the lungs. They just kind of crush down. But anyhow, I digress. So this, this idea of doctrine and going deep, uh, soteriology, hermeneology, uh, ecclesiology, all of these ologies that are out there, You can just keep on going in them. And that can be a pursuit for the rest of your life. So first we have the service, then we have the knowledge. And God never expects us to stop learning. I can remember being in school, looking out the window, thinking, I can't wait to get out of here. I I caused myself to remember a particular event looking out the clouds at Rosebank Elementary School. and I'm going to be out of school. And once I'm out of school, that's it. That's fine. I kind of hated school at that point. Then once I got out and got saved, I loved school. I wanted to go back to the school. And they tell you that when you're in school, you should never stop learning. And I believe that. You should continually be moving forward you should continually not only be in the bible but reading books about the bible how to share your faith apologetics all of those different things i was just able to almost finish a book cold case christianity delivered from a perspective of an old detective and how the detective used his skills to determine if jesus was in fact crucified it's a great book going through that But we're supposed to keep on growing. We're never supposed to stop. We're never supposed to think, I have gone as far as I need to go. And then there's this idea of strength. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Like this this idea of manual labor, lifting objects, when a little child wants to help you do something like a father and son thing. There's a story I related several years ago, Pastor Chuck Smith. He had his son come out, and he was going to, uh, he was building a wood fence. And he was putting the slats up there and nailing in each one of the slats, and his son came out and wanted to help him. And so he got a little block of wood, he drove a nail partially into it, gave his son a hammer, and he said, drive that nail into that block of wood. And so the little boy, his son, did that, ran in and told his mother, Kay, I helped Daddy build the fence, all because he was learning how to use the hammer. And so if a child comes along, you give them small tasks to begin with, which will produce endurance and patience, which is a strength. And so you you don't, For instance, take a new believer and take them on a missions trip to a third world country as soon as they're saved. Big mistake to do something like that. Somebody who goes on a trip like that needs to be tried and true. They they need to have a little bit of experience underneath their belt. They're ready for what may come to them. And this has been something throughout the generations, maybe up till this generation or the previous one to this, they have decided it's not necessary now. Now, can you think back, there was this president, his name was, or well, his initials, JFK. Now, JFK, he had this program. I remember this program. I'm not that old, I can still remember what we went through, but it was the presidential fitness program that was instituted in 1961 to 62. They published these booklets, there were 200,000 of them that they sent around all the schools, in the country, because JFK was worried that the future military would not be in shape. And so we had these times, especially when it got later on, they continued it for several years. I can remember being in sixth grade and, and, and having to do go outside, to, the, not a recess time, but a class time, where all of the upperclassmen in the elementary school, the fifth and sixth grade, we went outside. We did these jumping jacks, see how many jumping jacks you could do in so many minutes. You would do these deep knee bends, you would do sit-ups, you would do pull-ups, all of these different things. And they'd actually keep a tally on how many you could do. And if you got the most, then you got ribbons and you got accolades and how good that was. And it was a fitness program in the schools and everybody was required to take PE in middle school and high school and you had to take a shower there's no way any kids are taking showers today that is just like anathema if somebody does they're considered weird Uh, back when I was in school if you didn't take a shower you were considered weird and nobody liked to hang around you because you're probably smelly but these are things that we taught or we were taught To be strong, to be tough, to, to run. You know, we had to run track. We, they would have this track that we would run around and they would time us to see how fast we were going. That was in elementary school. And if you're not active, what happens? We turn into couch potatoes. We eat too many cookies from Christmas. You know, by the way, there's cookies in the back if you want to take those. But you you get the idea. We fall into the state of lethargy. We don't want to do anything. We become overweight and then that becomes a problem. And so as a believer, we're supposed to engage in activities that strengthen us spiritually, and that's what Paul was talking about, that they would be strengthened spiritually, that they would endure when they would go out and do the work of ministry. And because of this, it produces character in us. If we allow ourselves to be used like in Romans chapter 5 verse 3, it says not only so, But we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given unto us. And so there are benefits to putting yourself in a position where you're going to be tested and you're going to endure, but it builds character. And we are so concerned in our culture today about not harming anyone. Not having anybody endure anything. Have everybody be the same. Have nobody feel bad because tasks are difficult, because they're hard. And just the opposite needs to happen. We need to, when kids grow up, we don't kick them out, but we say, okay, this is your job. You have to do this. Get it done and come tell me when you're finished. And and you give them tasks. You give them something just a little bit above their level and hopefully they can adapt to it. That's not what we want to do today. We want to just make everybody feel good rather than have to persevere or endure. And that is going to inure to our detriment rather than to our benefit. And then the fourth thing is praise. Now, you know, when we sang this morning, we're praising God. You know, there's worship, the soulful type where you raise your hands, but then there's praise. It's like, yeah, I can get into this. It's good. And you hop around a little bit. You move to the left. You move to the right. And it, God wants us to have a party when we're praising him. It's good to praise the Lord. I think scripture says that. And we're supposed to praise him with all different kinds of instruments according to the book of Psalms. And if we do that, then we're fulfilling these four things, service, knowledge, strength, and praise. We're going on to maturity. Now, there's a reason why we should seek to live this life that is worthy. There's a, a, a base reason for it, the foundation. It's in verse 13. Verse 13 says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So one thing here, the dominion of darkness, you know, this is a phrase that's in scripture and maybe it's in some of the occult, but it's this idea that things are so dark that we were previously in before Jesus the light came and rescued us and when that took place we were taken out of or redeemed from that darkness now years ago Jack and Betty you'll remember this um, Thurston and Tube, we were in Hawaii years ago and we it was by um, not Mauna Kea Kilauea it's by Kilauea and as lava starts to flow, if it's molten, if it's really liquid, it forms these tubes underneath the surface. And they can run for as long as the eruption has taken place. And these can be miles long. Well, there's one. is called the Thurston Lava Tube that we descended into. And it, it, I don't know, would you? it's not quite as tall as this ceiling here, but it, you know, it's... Uh, it, It was a big tube. You could drive a car in it. It was so big. And we went down in one side, and there was some light uh, going down until you could exit. And then there's a sign, warning. You could continue, but there's no light. And so Jack and I, we walked down this Thurston lava tube, and it got so dark. I think you had a flashlight of some kind. But it got so dark and the sides and the ceiling weren't that far away but it got so dark that you could hardly see the sides or the ceiling because it's pitch black you're in a lava tube and we didn't go all the way down We I don't know, we probably went 50, maybe 100 yards down and that was it but it's almost like it swallowed up the light that's how dark it was and this isn't even compared to the darkness that they had experienced in the plague in Exodus chapter 10. Beginning in verse 21, I'll just read it to you. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Now, how dark is that? That's dark that even if they had fire, the light from that fire would not go very far. You couldn't see anything at all. That's how dark it was. And what happens when that darkness is there? You you grow up around you ever get up in the middle of the night you still have a little bit of light going on but you don't want to open your eyes so you do the braille method to go to the bathroom or something else and and you're trying not to hit the corner of either the bed or the you know where you keep your clothes you don't want to damage yourself and so you're just you're kind of going like this just a little bit at a time that's the darkness that we were in spiritually before christ came in and lit things up Now, as far as flashlights go, I like a bright flashlight. Now, how bright? Well, 3,000 lumens, 6,000 lumens, that's great. Especially if you're scuba diving, you want a good, bright light. Even though it doesn't go more than about 10 or 15 feet, you, you still want a good light unless it's totally clear under there. That's all the light goes. You know, the average bulb... You can get a bulb that's about 600 lumens or 1,200 lumens. This guy, he had this flashlight. It's called an Imolent MS-18. It has 100,000 lumens. That is bright. That will blind you if you look inside of that thing. And this guy, he went out and he he goes, do you want to see how bright this thing is? And he flicked it on it's just like... Just everything lit up. That is the light of Christ. He doesn't have a little pin light. He comes in, 100,000 lumens. He sees you in the darkness and he goes, Hey, you. And you go, Huh? And he goes, Come up here. And you believe that he has something good for you and you go. You go with him. You didn't do anything, you just responded. That's it. It's not a work. You didn't have to do something in order for him to, you didn't cry out to him. He just simply said, hey, you in the darkness. That's what he's referring to here. And when you're in or anyone is in that darkness, that is the result of sin. That's where the whole world is. The whole world is in that darkness. And they cannot see the light sometimes because they don't want to. Maybe a light is in the distance and they see a little glimmer It's coming towards them and say, no, I don't want to see the light and they keep on looking down. They will not come into the light because their deeds were dark and that's what the scripture says well jesus when he saves he gets that light shines it on somebody who's in total darkness groping around they don't know where they should go or what their destination should be they just have to sit like the people in egypt when that plague came upon them and john 1 5 says his life is light that shines through the darkness and the darkness never extinguished it that is in another version of the living bible and so have you ever seen darkness overcome light? Well, I think in the plague, that was probably the case where the light wouldn't go very far. But the light of Jesus, it pierces all the way through. And going on in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in, in his inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. There is no darkness. Now that darkness means there's no understanding. Light means you have the understanding and then it goes on to talk about jesus a little more here the preeminence of christ there's four things that i'm going to give you here the authority the redemption in his deity and in creation he has preeminence in his authority i'm just going to read through the verses here and then go back for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus has a kingdom. The kingdom is not of this world. This world is dying, and it will soon pass away. But what is it like to be in the kingdom that Jesus possesses and rules over? Well, all you have to do is look in Scripture. What, what does Scripture have to say about God's kingdom? What is it like? In Matthew chapter 5, you have the Beatitudes. Beatitudes. For instance, there are the poor in spirit, there are those who mourn, there are those who are weak, there are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, there are those who are merciful, those who have a pure heart, and those who are peacemakers, and those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of God. These are characteristics of the people in the kingdom. In other words, you're sorry for your sin. You understand what humility is. You're not one that is prideful. That's a characteristic of the citizen of the kingdom. But what if you want to know more about the kingdom itself? What, what's it like up there? Of course, we have in the book of Revelation a description of what heaven is going to be like and the foundation stones, the new Jerusalem that comes down and it's 1,200 miles, 1,200 miles, 1,200 miles and 12 foundation stones and a pearl at each gate, 12 gates and they're always open and you can go in and out and there's no sun because Jesus Christ lights up everything. That's what the kingdom is going to be like. We get that understanding. But if you really want to know about the people and the society that is there, you go through the parables where he was talking about the kingdom. He says, the kingdom is like, and there's different places. One big place is Matthew chapter 13, but also Matthew 5, Matthew 9, Matthew 21, Matthew 24. It's also in the Gospels of Luke, also in the Gospels of Mark. For instance, now as I go through these parables, I want you to see if you know what they're talking about or what Jesus is actually explaining here. I'm just going to give you the title of the parable. But if you're a mature believer, you would have understanding of what these parables are, what the meaning of these parables are. For instance, Matthew chapter 5, there's a few of them there. Salt of the earth. Do you know what the salt of the earth is about? If you do, that's part of being in the kingdom. What about lamp under a bowl? Wise and foolish builders. New cloth and old coat, new wine and old wineskins, the two debtors, the sower, the good Samaritan, the friend at midnight, the growing seed, the rich, few, rich fool. You know, have you been able to say, oh, yeah, I know what that one is, I know what that one is, I, I've, I've got a grasp on these. Or how about the watchful servants, the unfruitful fig tree, the weeds? the seed, yeast, the concealed treasure, the pearl, the casting of the net into the sea, owner of a house, a lost sheep, the unforgiving servant, the vineyard workers, lowest seat at the feasts, the great feast, cost of discipleship, the lost coin, the prodigal son, the shrewd manager, the rich man and Lazarus, master and his servant, persistent widow, the two sons, the vineyard owner, the marriage feast, the fig tree, faithful and wise servant the pharisee and the tax collector ten virgins the talent and the sheep and the goats the only one that i would question there is uh, abraham and lazarus i don't know if that's a parable the story it could be something that is actually true it's not a parable but if you have an understanding of what each one of those parables are then you are fully mature in your knowledge of what the kingdom is like if you want to know what the kingdom is like Look up all of these. Go through them. Gain some understanding. And so when it comes to the authority that Jesus possesses, these things describe his kingdom which he is king over. Then there is the redemption, which I previously covered, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We are redeemed from that darkness. We are retrieved from that darkness. We are delivered from it, taken out of it. When previously we were enveloped in that darkness, and that is called being redeemed or being released or being liberated, freed or rescued. That's what Jesus does for us, and he has all authority over redeeming us. Then it comes to his deity. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I gave you all those verses on the deity of Christ. Just for the sake of somebody who may be listening to this message, I'm just going to give you the addresses of all of these. Jesus certainly is in the image of God, the firstborn over all creation. We have John one one, we have John five eighteen, we have John twenty twenty eight, Romans nine five, Colossians, Colossians Titus 2 Peter and one fifteen, Colossians two nine, Hebrews one eight, Titus two thirteen, Second Peter one one, and First John five twenty, as well as Revelation one eighteen and Revelation twenty two twelve. And you can go to the Old Testament, Isaiah 44, 6. He's the first and the last. All of those speak of the deity of Christ, that he is God in human form. Remember, I think I told you, the heresies in the first century were, Jesus is not God, he can only be man. And Jesus is not man, he can only be God. And those were heresies, the Gnostic and the Arian heresies, which were going around in the first century. And that was established as false And we know the true teaching is Jesus is deity in human form. Then it talks about this idea of being the firstborn over all creation. Now, he is the firstborn certainly, and he is God, but being the firstborn, there are cults that misinterpret this firstborn when it comes to creation. They say that Jesus was created first and then he created everything. That's not what scripture says. Scripture says that Jesus created everything that exists. That which is visible and that which is invisible. He is the one in being a firstborn. What it's referring to there is the right of primogeniture Now if you've never heard that before. This is the idea that the firstborn male is the one that a double portion of inheritance goes to. And so Jesus being the firstborn over all creation, it doesn't mean that he was the first one created. What it means, his body, he became incarnate with Mary. The human race was already in existence. And he existed, we know according to uh, the book of Isaiah, he existed for all of eternity in the past he just took on a body at that particular point and so he always existed and he is the creator of all things but when it comes to firstborn it means he gets the rights of the firstborn it's kind of like bringing in the first fruits he is the first uh, fruits of the dead being brought in first resurrection he is the one that is preeminent over all others who get resurrected there's no one who is higher than him that is the uh, the term promogenitor that is what it's representing there when it says firstborn so the firstborn son got double the amount now this wasn't always the case in scripture even though that was the practice of everyone for instance Abraham who was Abraham's first son? Ishmael Ishmael was the first son Isaac was the first son of a promise did the birthright go to Ishmael? no it didn't go to Ishmael It went to Isaac. Isaac was the son of a promise. Well, what about Isaac? He had two sons. He had Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older one. Did he get the birthright? He did not. He sold it for a bowl of chili is what he did. And then Jacob deceived his father Isaac into thinking he was Esau and he got the birthright. And they knew that uh, people just felt, oh, this is all wrong. It's not supposed to go that way. Well, if you go on from there and you go to Jacob, who got the birthright from Jacob? As Jacob, he would have handed it down to his firstborn. Do you remember who his firstborn was? It was Reuben. Reuben was his firstborn. But he didn't get it because he went and slept with Bilhah. Bilhah was his father's concubine. He went up to his father's wife is what he did. And he said, Man, you're cursed because of that. And so he didn't get the blessing as a result of that. And it kind of goes on down the line. There, there are several people that don't get that line of manager Excuse me, I have to say it right. It's primogenitor. That is the word that we want to pay attention to. Now, this is something we know in our day and age. If you have Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth II. Now, she has sons and one daughter. We know that there is Prince Charles. He's getting just about as old as Queen Elizabeth now. Uh, He had, or she had also, Princess Anne. She was next in line. Then there was Prince Andrew. Then there was Prince Edward. Guess who the throne goes to next when she dies? It goes to Prince Charles. Now, once Prince Charles dies, it doesn't go to Anne or Andrew or Edward, her other children. It goes to Prince William, who married Kate Middleton. This is the right of the lineage. Whoever is the firstborn, it goes to the firstborn uh, down the line. And the only reason that Queen Elizabeth got the throne is because her older brother, he walked away from the throne because he married a divorced woman. And it was a big scandal back then. I remember I was alive back then, but not really it, it was so long ago but that's how she became queen and so it goes to the firstborn, and then after prince william gets the throne after his father uh charles prince charles then his son prince william's son from cape middleton prince george gets the throne that's how they do it it's the line of promogenitor and and we Kind of hold to that today, we kind of not nah, we could usually just spread everything equally out there. And so you, you look at the scripture, like for instance, King David. Who was King David's firstborn son? You know, I I had to start thinking about it. I go, I don't remember who his firstborn son was. And I had to go back and look it up. And it names in Second Samuel chapter three, verses two through four, six sons. In order, the firstborn, all the way down to that which was number sixth, Amnon was his firstborn son, and Amnon died. And Abnon excuse me, and after Amnon there was Absalom. Absalom was the second in line, but you skipped one. Kilead. Kilead was the son of Abigail. Remember Abigail? She was married to the fool Nabal. Well, it didn't go to him either. It didn't go to Amnon. It didn't go to Kilead. It didn't go to Absalom. Absalom ended up dying as well. And then you have Adonijah and Sapphathiah and Ithriam Those are David's sons It would have gone to. Who did it go to? It went to Solomon. That's who it went to. And God said, no, none of these guys are going to qualify. They're out of the running, and it's going to go to him. And once it went to Solomon, then, of course, we know we had the divided kingdom that comes after that. But it's this idea of keeping the firstborn preeminent double blessing male that is firstborn. He's the one that gets the blessing. That's what the firstborn is referring to. It is not referring to in creation he is not the firstborn over creation as far as the first one being created and then his creation he created everything right i think you know this evolution is a lie i can remember being in dr lyle's class in high school and we grew fruit flies and with those fruit flies what we do we have ether and we had the eggs of the fruit flies. We put them in cotton with sugar and we put a little capsule on it. And we stuck it up on the shelf. And then once we stuck it up on the shelf, we had to take some ether and we had to anesthetize them. And then we had to count the ones that were different, like ones with no wings, one with shriveled wings, one with wings that were intact. And we counted all those out. And Dr. Lyle said, this is how evolution takes place. And I thought, Oh so we evolved back at that time. Well, that's not true. That's micro evolution. That's not macro evolution. Micro evolution. is why aren't we all purple? We're not all purple because God likes diversity in color. We have everything from black to pasty white. You have the blackest of black people. You have the whitest of white albinos. Uh, that are out there and their hair is just as white as can be and you have everything in between we even had a song as a child that we sang about that red and yellow black and white all over you know it doesn't matter what color somebody is god likes that variety which is out there but that's microevolution. Macroevolution says a dinosaur gave birth to a bird It doesn't happen that way. Or an elephant gave birth to an alligator. It it doesn't... You don't have any transition of species like that. If you were born that... Like all dogs that we have from the little uh, chihuahua all the way up to a mastiff, you know, or a Great Dane, they're all dogs. They all came... Or wolf, they all came from some dogs. And they just kept on breeding and breeding and they wanted a particular type... That microevolution. It's not macro-evolution. You'll never see a fish turn into a turtle. Of course, I'm being ridiculous here. The combinations that they come up with are just absurd. Evolution is a lie for many reasons which are out there. If you doubt that, you can look up the Discovery Institute, Dr. Stephen Meyer, and he'll talk about teleology. Teleology is, there is information in the DNA code which leads to intelligence this code information doesn't come anywhere else except from a mind now this is a philosophical argument Jesus is the mind that created how smart is Jesus you know when they talk about evolution so many processes take place at one time how did we get to where we are where the eye has so many functions, where the cell has 10,000 functions on the inside. How many trial and errors would you have to go through to get that cell to function properly? And then to join with other cells and to differentiate between the cells where you have a heart or a liver or a pancreas or an eyeball or bone, all of those things differentiated. And we think, oh, it just happened. Have you ever seen a robot just come together all on its own? You know, there's one planet in our solar system that is occupied strictly by robots. Did you know what planet that is? And it's not Earth. It's Mars. Bunch of robots up there. You think that they're going to get together and just kind of evolve and all of a sudden have a super robot, a gigantor that's going to appear there and he's going to fly to It ain't going to happen. That's technical English. It's not going to happen where these things just come together and these things evolve. It's not going to take place. And so this teleological argument for the existence of god means there's intelligence in the design of our earth and it points directly to a designer and then there's the cosmological argument he is the creator everything has a cause right you are here because your parents your parents caused you to be here believe it or not how were you shocked when you first found that out you know, my parents that's how i got here yeah that's how you got here and the, how did they get here by their parents as well. There was a cause for everything. How did these chairs get here? They just came up out of the concrete and just oozed into their shape. No, they didn't. Somebody created them. Somebody harvested the cotton for the material. Somebody uh, mined the iron ore for the metal that is in there. Somebody created the paint. They got the stuff for the paint and put the paint on the metal. All of that was by design. Everything has a cause. You cannot name anything except for one thing, that does not have a cause. And that one thing is God. God is the first uncaused cause... That's where everybody and everything came from. Even the scientists agree now. Remember Einstein? Einstein kind of fudged the numbers because he didn't want to say that the universe had a beginning. And then he met with Edmund Hubble uh, out here at Palomar and he showed him the redshift. And when he showed him the redshift, that means everything is speeding away from each other. That means it was all going back together. And that means there was a beginning in the universe. And so Einstein relented. He recanted and said, Oh, yeah, so it had a beginning. If it had a beginning, Who started it? How did it get rolling? And, of course, it befuddled several scientists at the time, but they're grappling with that, and now teleology is coming up, and they're trying to shoo that away. They don't want to listen to that. That's Jesus. Jesus did all that. Jesus said, let there be light, and boom, there was light. How do you create light? I I have no idea how you would do that. How do you create x-rays and gamma radiation and all of that stuff? I, I don't know. God is a lot smarter than any one of us, and it takes a lot of intelligence. And so he not only created the universe, but he created that which is unseen, which is the moral code. I talked to somebody, I think it was last month, and they were saying, well, society is responsible. Culture is responsible for morality. I said, if that's true, there is no morality you can choose to do whatever you want and nothing is moral everything is changing and there's absolute truth and he was kind of stunned by that like you mean it's what's transcendent and I explained what transcendent was as opposed to eminent being here and something that we do he didn't quite get that but we're supposed to be a witness of these things we're a witness of the fact that Jesus created everything and he created not only that which exists that we can see but also the moral code and also the powers that exist out there in heaven and on earth a different hierarchy of angels and even fallen angels he set all of that up And then there is the last thing. He is the head of the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. And he has all the rights of headship of the church. He rose from the dead first. And some people, I even heard this argument on YouTube this last week, that, well, but several people rose from the dead in the Old and the New Testament. Like Lazarus, he rose from the dead. And the widow of Nain, her son, she was widowed, remember? And Jesus walked up. And he touched the coffin. He goes, hey, get up. Could you imagine that at a funeral? Jesus shows up and says, hey, wake up. The person gets up. Would you be shocked? Are you kidding me? Patty and I were in Israel once, and we were on the Temple Mount, and around one of the buildings on the Temple Mount, they were carrying a dead body, and it was like a low open box. It had sides on it, maybe four to six inches, and they were all carrying it on the shoulders, and the person who had deceased was inside of that and there was a flag atop uh, the top and uh, uh, they were of the Arab community, they weren't Jews and they were carrying this body on the temple mount. And I, I could just envision Jesus walking up to something like that, grabbing the coffin, pulling it close, saying, get up. It, it was a perfect picture when we were there just going, wow, that, that's exactly how Jesus could have done it. Or what about Jairus' daughter, the ruler of the synagogue? raised his daughter all of these people were resuscitated well what about at the resurrection in matthew chapter 27 52 and 53 it talks about people came out of the graves and went back in they all had to die again why didn't they get the new model no they got the refurbished old model and they will get the new model when they're resurrected again in the future But Jesus is the head of that. He is the the firstborn over all creation. He's the firstborn of the dead. We are going to follow afterwards. We are submissive to him because he is the one that raises us from the dead. So all these people died again. Jesus is preeminent. That's what this section of scripture is trying to tell us. He is over everything. There is no one who is above him. Now he is submissive to the Father, but the Father has given him all authority. And both the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. That's how the Trinity works. There's harmony within the Trinity. And so for us walking away here, how are we supposed to take all this? Well, we've been redeemed out of darkness, a darkness that was so dark you couldn't determine where you're supposed to go or what you're supposed to do and for all of this when we recognize that he has redeemed us and it was for the purpose of maturing having good works growing in knowledge operating by the power of god gaining endurance and joyfully giving thanks to the father that's why he did it and then all of this was caused By Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? He is before all things. He's the firstborn. He's not the first human ever born. He is the head over everything. There is no one greater. He is God in human form and deserves our worship. That's what this section of scripture is talking about. That's why we bow down to him. That's why we're humble before him. He has the power of life and death. My prayer for you is that you're able to grasp how wide and how deep the love of God is for you to pull you out of that thirst and lava tube and say, you're going to come into light. He gave you the invitation. You have accepted that. Now it's our job to be that same light, that $100,000 or 100,000 lumen flashlight and point it at people and say, you need to come into the light. And if we do that, we are assisting God in the work that he has called us to do before the foundations of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Paul was so able to communicate to us who Jesus was and how he is above all things. He is preeminent. He is the firstborn, the primogenitor. He is the one that is deserving of our worship and praise. Help us to do this, Lord, as we go through our day to sing and make merry in our hearts, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And may we quote them to each other to encourage each other for what lies ahead. Again, we thank you for your word and for Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.